Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, worship team, for preparing our hearts today to enter into God's presence. And today we are continuing our study of 1 Samuel, so if you'd like to turn with me to chapter 7 of 1 Samuel. Uh, We're at a time in Israel's history where they're wrestling with some of the very same things that we are. Where is your hope? Where is your trust? When you're going through a difficulty, when there's an enemy that you can't face on your own, where do you go for your source of strength and hope? And we're going to find out here today there's really two options that are presented to us. To look to the Creator God, the Maker of heaven and earth, the One who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, timeless, unchanging. Is, is He our strength and our hope? Is He our King? Or do we look to our own efforts, our own wisdom? Do we look to another human? Do we take matters into our own hands? That we're really confronted with these same choices today as God's people were back here in 1 Samuel. So let's read now in 1 Samuel chapter 7 beginning in verse 3. Now Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. We're meeting some pagan deities here in the beginning of this story. Uh, Male and female, false gods that were worshipped in this part of the world at this time in history. Um, So, you know, you can go after these demons, be they male or female, as a source of power. Just like the Philistine enemies that are among you. They've got their god Dagon. And we saw earlier in 1 Samuel how powerful Dagon was in the face of the Almighty God as the Philistines brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord into the house of their God, Dagon, and the next morning they were in for a big surprise. Dagon was laying face down on the ground uh, in a posture of worship before the God of Israel. And they thought, well, maybe that was just a coincidence. Let's just stand that Dagon back up and everything will be okay. The next morning, he was tipped over once again. This time, his head and his hands had rolled off. And it was a direct confrontation to this pagan god, this false god. And yet, how quick we are to forget the victories that have come in the past when God defeats the Philistines, when God delivers us from our enemies. And here now we find the nation of Israel worshiping pagan deities of the land, worshiping the gods of the ancient Near Eastern peoples that they were to drive out from that promised land. And yet as Samuel comes with a word from the Lord to the people of Israel, in this case they do repent. They do turn their hearts back to the Lord. And they put away these false gods that they have served. Uh, it's, it's important to note that uh, phrase here at the beginning of verse 3. It says, all the house of Israel. You see that theme repeated throughout chapter 7 here. All the people of Israel in verse 4. Verse 5, all Israel. There's unity There's unity in worship. There's unity in devoting themselves to the Lord. There's a unified trust in the Lord. There's unity in repentance. Unity in prayer and in fasting and in confessing their sins and turning to the Lord. That's the kind of unity we want in our church, right? To be united in these ways where we're united in prayer and in repentance and in confession and in devotion to the Lord and reminding one another that this is our source of authority and God is our king and he's the one who fights our battles. There are other kinds of unity that we'll see later in chapter 8, not the kind of unity that God's people should ever emulate. And so now they're united and 
Samuel says to them in verse 5, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. And so here we see that very clearly there's prayer, there's fasting, there's repentance, and there's a unified effort by the people of God to turn their hearts once again fully to the Lord. So now the the Philistines are are hearing word of what's happening, that all of Israel is gathered in one place. They're seeing an opportunity. Perhaps a caution to us as well, as we gather in worship, to realize that there is a spiritual battle raging. There is a real enemy that we have. There is a temptation that as we gather in God's presence to worship Him, we will attract the eyes of the enemy, the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy And we see now as the enemy tries to take advantage of this time when God's people are all assembled in one place. Philistines in verse 7 heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah and the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that He may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Now, once again, there's unity. The imminent threat of this very real enemy who has defeated the nation of Israel in the past drives God's people to a unified call for prayer. Say, don't cease to pray for us, Samuel. Pray that God will be the one that grants the victory. Pray that God will fight the battles for his people. And so the the circumstances, these very negative circumstances, the very real enemy is actually driving God's people to greater unity and a unity that points their attention to the one true God, the source of strength, the one who grants victory. They're trusting in God to fight their battles. Maybe you are in a battle that looks a little bit like this one today. It's hopeless. It's an enemy that has defeated you in the past. You can remember that. You know that you're not equipped To defeat this enemy, there's actually fear in your heart about the future. So there's that combination of looking back to things that didn't go so well in the past and that fear and apprehension about where this might lead. Maybe you can think of a specific example that you're facing today. And I think we see here in the example of God's people acting faithfully and in unity, the solution to that unbeatable enemy and the answer to that fear that you're fearing rising, feeling rising up within you is to cry out to God and even to gather other faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and say, don't cease to cry out for me. This is what I'm facing. This is the reality I'm in. This is the fear I have. Yet sometimes as Americans, we're, we have this though none go with me, still I will follow attitude. That really is just American autonomy, keeping everyone else at arm's length, not being vulnerable, not being transparent, not admitting our weaknesses, our fears, our past failures. And really it ends up being a different version of what we're going to see Israel doing in the next chapter when they say, you know, I'm not quite so sure that I can trust God to fight my battles. Maybe I need to take it upon myself. Maybe I need a different king than the maker of heaven and earth to fight this battle to grant victory. So when you're facing that unbeatable enemy, cry out to God 
and enlist the help of other believers to cry out to God together with you, to join with you in prayer. We've got a bulletin with a tear-out slip with a prayer request spot. You could put it right in there. It's very practical. And say, hey, church, hey, people of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, stand with me in prayer. Cry out to the Lord for this circumstance that I'm facing. So Samuel is faithful to, to, to their request, and he says, okay, you're asking for prayer. I'll give you that prayer. I will cry out for you. And so uh, Samuel does that with a sacrifice. Verse 9, Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. I love this part. And the Lord answered him. You know, there are times when God is silent. Earlier in this chapter, there was no real response from God. There was fear in the hearts of the people. There was no doubt memory of the defeat at the hands of the Philistines in the past. And God was silent at least for a long enough period of time for that fear to develop in the people's hearts. And then sometimes God answers. And now we see a change in the story as Samuel is crying out to the Lord and he's offering a sacrifice on behalf of his people. He's saying, God, they, they need you to intervene. There is an imminent threat of an enemy that is unbeatable. And we need you to move, God. And God answers. Now, one lesson I take from this story is that it's God's timing, not mine. God is sovereign. He is the king. He knows all the circumstances. He knows the beginning from the end. There's times when he remains silent to allow us to trust in him to a greater level. And yet, don't use that to, as, as a way of distorting your understanding of God to think that he's always silent. There is a God who answers. So cry out to Him. Turn to Him in your distress. And He does answer. Now how does He answer here in this story, verse 10? As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. It wasn't a timid response from the maker of heaven and earth. He thundered in such a way that it confused and routed the enemy. Just with a sound. The same God who spoke everything into being out of nothing by just saying, let there be, let there be, let there be. That God who created out of nothing with his voice now uses that voice not to construct but to deconstruct. To, to cause destruction on the enemies of his chosen people. And he thunders with a loud voice. Now the Philistines are the ones in fear. The Philistines are the ones who are confused and fleeing and running. And they're routed before the nation of Israel. Why is it that when we serve the God who creates all things with his mouth, and the God who can speak decisively to that enemy that we can't fight against, when we've got that God as our God, why is it that He's the last place we turn after we've exhausted every other option? Have you ever heard that phrase? Well, I guess all we can do now is pray. Isn't that sort of a foolish approach to the God who fights our battles for us, who knows our circumstances, He knows our past and our future? And He's saying, I can thunder on your behalf against this adversary. 
or you can exhaust every other thing, just basically exhausting yourself, using your intellect, your resources, taking matters into your own hands, making a deal, working an angle. Your smarts, your conniving, your arguing, lying awake at night, going to the doctors and the psychologists and the personal trainers and the alternative medicine and the life coaches and the self-help books. Maybe at some point you'll get to the point of where you should have begun crying out to the maker of heaven and earth and not ceasing to cry out to him as Samuel modeled here. And that God is prepared to thunder and to answer. So let's begin with prayer not turn to prayer after we've tried everything else in human effort. And so as the Philistines are now routed, verse 11, the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Who won the battle that day? God. The Lord went out before His people in battle. The Lord conquered the enemy And then the Israelites just got to mop up the spoils. They got to just kind of be a part of what God was already doing. It was not the Israelites winning the battle that day. The Israelites making it happen. The Israelites going out, you know, some important Israelite going out before the rest of the nation to ensure victory over the enemy. God is the one who fought the battle for his people, guaranteed the victory, went out before them in battle, and they just got to enjoy the celebration of winning and having victory over this adversary. And so to commemorate that day and so that the people would never forget that decisive victory at the hand of the Lord. Verse 12, Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. That'd be a rock of help. A A big rock named the rock of help so that everyone who walks by that place will remember the day that God thundered against our enemy, that God answered our prayer, that God defeated the enemy we could never beat. For Samuel said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to them. From Ekron to Gath, And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all those places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. We began this chapter with altars to these false gods, the Ashtaroth, the Baals, the nation of Israel. Other places in the Old Testament calls that prostituting their hearts to these pagan gods. Instead of going to that one true place of love where the steadfast love of the Lord is given to them and they're created to enjoy His presence, to participate in His love that has existed throughout all of time, between the members of the Trinity, that God who created out of that heart of love. And yet how how often we, like God's people in the Old Testament, find our affections going in other directions. But by the end of the story here, there's now an altar to the one true God. There's faithfulness 
There's deliverance, there's freedom, there's God continuing to fight against the enemy of his people. And what had begun in hopelessness and despair now ends with a a note of hope, of victory and freedom and peace and prosperity. And this reminder of that stone that every time we walk by it, it's a reminder God will not let us down. God goes out before us, God ensures the victory, God defeats our foes. You know, I was thinking today as we were singing those worship songs, we have a sort of Ebenezer, don't we? It's the cross. It's that reminder that our God has thundered in a decisive, mighty way to defeat the ultimate enemies of sin and death. He's he's thundered decisively on our behalf against that adversary that we could never defeat. It's the cross of Jesus that grants that victory. It's the cross of Jesus that goes out before us into battle that ensures the victory. And our cross, as a Protestant church, does not have our Savior still hanging on the cross because it's His resurrection that goes with that cross. It's the risen Savior. It's His victory over sin in the grave that we commemorate and remember every time we wear a little cross on our neck or we've got one in our home or we see a depiction of that cross Not that we're worshiping that as an idol, but it's a reminder of what God has done. Today, at the end of the service, we're going to be taking communion. And we do this in remembrance of Him. We look back to the sacrifice of our Lord. We look forward to the day that He returns. And we remember when we see the cross, when we break bread together to remember His broken body, when we take that cup to remember His shed blood, it's like a reminder to one another, our God will not let us down. Our God has won the victory. Our God is with us. Our God fights the battles on our behalf. And yet somehow, like the nation of Israel in the very next chapter, we can begin to walk by that reminder of God's faithfulness and His victory. We can walk by the cross without remembering, without noticing, and we get lulled into an apathy We can start looking at our own navels once again, thinking that this is the the source of strength and hope. This is, you know, my world, my priorities, my values is somehow more real than those things that happened way in the past. Just like the nation of Israel, although they had that Ebenezer erected on a prominent path to remind them of God's victory over the Philistines, they got to a place where they could walk right by that without even remembering the significance of that rock. And at the end of Samuel's life, there comes a crisis moment for the nation of Israel. When Samuel became very old, chapter 8, he made his sons judges over Israel. Uh, This has not been a good idea to this point in the Old Testament. A a succession plan that, that is based on your ancestry, your family lineage, hasn't worked out real well. It didn't work out well with Gideon and his sons. It didn't work out very well at the beginning of 1 Samuel with Eli and his sons. It's not going to work out real well here with Samuel and his boys either. You know, there's a, uh, I, I, heard that, I heard a quote from Andy Knuth that I'm going I'm to steal today. God doesn't have any grandkids. He only has children. He has sons and daughters. So for young people here today, the fact that your mom and dad have a relationship with Jesus doesn't guarantee that you will. 
For those of us who are in our adult years, the fact that our parents serve the Lord doesn't mean that we will faithfully follow after Him. Each person is confronted with that choice. Will you trust God to fight your battles for you? Or will you look to your own strength or some other plan that your heart comes up with to replace the maker of heaven and earth as the warrior king? And that choice comes to each one of us. For Samuel, his sons chose a different path than honoring the God of heaven and earth. Verse 2, the name of his firstborn son was Joel, the name of a second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So three serious accusations against Samuel's sons. Not following their dad's ways, but instead going after greed, after self-serving priorities and values, and then dishonesty, perverting justice. And so now in contrast to what we saw in chapter 7, all Israel, all the people of Israel, now we have a little episode with just the elders of Israel. Okay, they're looking at this, at this situation, a new enemy, a new threat, not from without, but from within. And so the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. Thanks, guys. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out, up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Samuel comes to the Lord and he says, God, you're hearing what they're requesting, what these elders of your people are requesting. They're saying, give us a king like all the other nations. We get a little bit more insight into exactly what they're asking later in verse 20 when they say, that we may, that we may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Their heart is for a particular kind of king, a king that will really, they're, they're really rejecting God as the king, as the warrior king that we just saw in chapter 7. There's a stone on the path to remind you that he will never leave you, that he grants victory. And you're saying you want a human to go out before you in battle? Like all the other nations? God says if that's what they want, give them what they're asking for. Give them what they want. Now Samuel goes into explicit detail on what this exactly will mean for God's people. What will it be like to have this king? He's giving them the opportunity to acquire wisdom the easy way. Most of us need to acquire wisdom through the mistakes and consequences, right? It's really nice if you can learn from somebody else's mistakes. Hey, nation of Israel, let's talk about all the other nations that have kings. What does that look like for them? And what will this mean for you? 
Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. There's no ambiguity with this warning. He goes through a very detailed list. This is what your request means. It will cost you your sons and your daughters. It will cost you your fields and your flocks. It will cost you all the blessing and provision the works of your hands. Is this what you want? This is another instance when God may be silent in our lives. Not just because we're in the middle of a battle that He's about to win when we cry out to Him, but at times because He's left us to the consequences of our decisions. You know, if, if our prayer only comes, you know, when we, say, we shake our fist at God and say, I'm going to do it my way, and then we're going down our path, we're finding out that it's costing us. And then we say, God, can you bail me out of my plan? That may be one of those times when God remains silent. And He allows us to remain in that place of the consequences of our action. That's where wisdom is acquired. Maybe you're in a place like that today where you've gone down a certain path and it's not God's path. And you're crying out. You're saying, God, why aren't you blessing this path that I've gone down of my own intellect, my own heart? I followed my plans. Why aren't you working in this plan that I've come up with out of my own heart against your word? He's not going to bless and he's not going to guide and he's not going to answer that sort of a prayer. It's only a prayer of repentance, a, re- a prayer of turning, a prayer of confession that he can bless, that he can respond to, that he can once again assure victory. It's when we work for his glory and his kingdom that our prayers don't just bounce off the ceiling. When we're praying his heart, pr- praying like Jesus did, not my will but yours be done. That's the kind of prayer that God will answer. When we submit our ways to his, we say, God, show us your plans. Teach us your paths. Guide us in your truth. Teach us, Lord. And then we put one foot in front of the other on that life of faith. And as the enemies come, we trust our God to go before us to ensure victory. So here the the nation of Israel has very clear, unambiguous warnings, cautions, 
Everything's laid right out. And yet now we see a different kind of unity. Not just the elders of Israel that we've met here in chapter 8, but now all of Israel, once again, in verse 19. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. And now we meet the first king of Israel, King Saul, a king really chosen by the will of the people. Not the king that God chose to lead his people but instead the king that the people chose for themselves. They're asking for a warlike king. They're asking for a king who will replace God as the one who fights the battles on their behalf. They're they're looking around at at the culture. They're saying, this is the way the world does it. We want to do that right here as God's people as well. They've got a warrior king. We want a warrior king. They've got a king that they can worship and look to as a god. That's what we want here in Israel. God says, give them what they want. The people are united. They serve the God who had thundered to defeat enemies. They serve the God who had led them up out of generations of of captivity in Egypt, who had led them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of flame by night through the wilderness wandering, who had defeated the enemies in the promised land, who had granted them this territory that he had promised and pledged as a blessing, knowing the promises all the way back generations to Abraham. I will bless you. I will make you a blessing. Through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And instead of that sort of missional call to God's people, you will be different in a way that will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. They're flipping that around and going, no, we just want to be like all the nations of the earth. We want to have a human king to go out before us in battle. That rock that Samuel stood up between Mizpah and Shen was to remind the people, God will not let you down. Really, here in chapter 8, we're seeing the opposite message. People will let you down. Samuel's sons, a dynasty based on this one human who is faithful, There's no victory assured down that path. People will let you down. The pattern of all the other nations of the earth who have human kings that go out before them in in victory and in battle, that plan's going to let you down as well. Let me articulate the cautions. It's going to cost you your sons and your daughters and your servants and your wealth and your land and your prosperity. You will be slaves down that path. People will let you down. God's heart was that his people would trust in him, would look to him as their source of strength and hope. What about that situation that you thought of earlier today as we open this chapter of God's word, these chapters? You started thinking about that real enemy that has defeated you in the past, that causes fear to rise in your heart today. And you've got that situation, that thing that makes you apprehensive, that keeps you up at night. You have that in mind today. 
What are you doing about it? Are you taking matters into your own hands? Are you following the world's ways, looking around at the nations of this earth to see how they would propose a solution to this unbeatable enemy that you're facing? We, in America, tend to set ourselves up as kings, not to look to another human. It's because of this radical individualism that we have here. that we, I could be the king of this. You know, I can do my own research, do my own effort, do my own plan. I'll be the king of this incident that requires decisive action, and I'll step out. The warning is that when we erect ourselves or any other human to be the king, we're going to be defeated. We're going to have the life sucked out of us. We're not going to be assured victory. And so today the message to us as God's people is put your hope in the Lord. Trust in the God who thunders with a mighty voice to defeat our enemies. Cry out to, the God, to that God. Do not cease to cry out to Him. Turn your heart to Him. That could take the shape of reinstituting that daily discipline of prayer and time in His Word. Maybe it's been too long since you've had that daily reminder of where your victory comes from. And that's one way of, of, of saying de facto, I'm in charge. You know, my quiet time with the Lord is optional because I'm out there making stuff happen. i got to do, do this on my own. And our hearts get pulled in other directions when we do that. God's saying, come back to me. Cry out to me. Do not cease to cry out to me. And it's through those times of prayer and in his word that our hearts get realigned, that we see that cross that reminds us of God's decisive voice in the past and his enduring promise to fight our battles for us today, tomorrow, next week, in each situation that we face, He's the one who assures our victory. He's the one that gives us that abundant life today. Take that time to remain with Him, to spend time in His presence. We're going to take a look at one other passage here as we come to the close of the service because I think when you read the story here in 1 Samuel 8, you may get a distorted view of kingship. In God's eyes, it's an extremely negative picture of kingship. God's telling Samuel, hey, they have rejected me. It looks like God is opposed to the idea of kingship, which is, if we understand it that way, it's going to make it a little bit hard to understand the story of King David that's to come a little bit later. A picture of the right kind of king. In contrast to this human king that the nation of Israel is saying, this is the kind of king we want. A warlike king who will go out before us in battle. There is a kind of king that God has always intended for his people. And we see that repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant in the book of Genesis. We're going to actually read a a passage from the Mosaic law in Deuteronomy 17, so you can begin to turn there. But I'll just quote a few other instances of God preparing his heart for the day that they have a human king. So there were promises in God's covenant with Abraham. You can read this in Genesis chapter 17, or it's also repeated in Genesis 35. God's telling Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. 
I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Okay, so there, God is, is giving a promise to Abraham in a positive way, saying part of the blessing that's going to come upon you and my chosen people is that there will be kings as a blessing, as a good thing. At the end of Genesis, the, the blessings that are given to Judah and to the tribe of Judah, Genesis 49, include this, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Scepter is a king word, right? So there will be kings of the, line, of the line, the lineage of Judah. In Numbers 24, there's uh, this interesting story about this pagan king, Balak, who brings a pagan fortune teller, Balaam, to, you know, tries to pay him to prophesy against the nation of Israel. And yet when Balaam opens his mouth, he can only say good things and blessings of God's people, Israel. Balak's like, I'm not getting my money's worth on this deal here. One of the things Balaam says there in Numbers 24 is a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Again, in the words of blessing to Israel and to God's people is included this promise of kingship. So what kind of a king would God choose for his people? Not the kind of a king that the people are asking for here in 1 Samuel chapter 8. A warlike king who will go out before them in battle. In fact, that's in direct contrast to what God has instructed in, this, in, in the Mosaic Covenant that we're going to read together here in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Let's just look at a few verses here. The timing on this, the story we're reading in 1 Samuel Uh, The life of Samuel, David, that's around about 1,000 B.C. The passage we're reading here now in Deuteronomy 17 would be back before the conquest of the promised land. The life of Moses, maybe about 1,400 B.C. So we're talking 400 years prior to this event that we've just read in 1 Samuel 8. Here's God giving instructions about the kind of king that he would choose for his people. Verse 14. Deuteronomy 17. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. Now start making a mental list. What are the requirements of a king that God would choose? You may not put a foreigner over you, so it's one of your brothers, not a foreigner, who is not your brother, what's the risk of having a foreigner as the king of God's people? We saw at the beginning of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7. They're worshiping pagan gods. You bring in a, a, a king from a different uh, nation who does not worship the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth. There may be some Baals, some Ashtaroth, some Dagons in the mix, and that, that won't work if God is to be the king. Verse 16, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. I see some of the horse lovers here kind of scowling a little bit today. We got a lot of horse lovers in the room. What's the deal with horses? 
What do the horses signify? We just read it in Samuel's warnings in 1 Samuel 8. What goes, what goes on, on a horse at this time in history? A chariot. And so God's warning, don't hire a warlike king. Don't get a king who's going to build up a great big army. Samuel is warning the people in 1 Samuel 8, you're asking for a warlike king. He's going to take all your sons to fight, to, to go out before his chariots, to ride in the chariots, to go out to battle. He's going to put them as commanders of his army. Instead of God going out before you to fight the battles, to just thunder with his voice and assure the victory, this is what a warlike king will look like. And God had explicitly warned his people way back under Moses, you don't want that kind of a king. That's not the kind of king God would choose for his people. You don't want a king who takes you back to Egypt. That was the place of slavery. You want the king who delivered you from Egypt. Verse 17. He shall not acquire many wives for himself. Another danger point. Reminds me of another king we're going to meet later. David's son Solomon. And the problem that comes with that, it's not just multiple mothers-in-law, but it's all the, the, the foreign gods, once again, that are brought in as Solomon's marrying many women from different nations. Verse 17, Lest his heart turn away, where is his affection going to be? Is it going to be for these multiple wives, or is it going to be a love for God? End of verse 17. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. You don't want an acquisitive king who's all about money and wealth. So don't get a king who's going after horses, women, or cash. Avoid those things. So what sort of a king would God choose? What's the job of a king? When he sits on the throne... Of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. You want a king who writes his own copy of the Bible. That, that's painstaking, that's time consuming. You want a king who's not a scribe, he's going to not be fast and efficient and good at this. You want a king. Who's going to act like a scribe, looking carefully at God's word and making his own copy? And then what is he going to do with that book, that copy of God's law that he's written? Verse 19, it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord, his God. By keeping all the words of this law and all these statutes and doing them. You want a king, Israel, that I choose, whose primary job will be to learn to follow my ways. Who's the real king in that scenario? It's the one that the book is about, right? The one that the king has now written a copy of that law and he's carrying it with him every day. And he's reading it every day, and as he does, 
He's learning to fear the Lord his God. Israel, that's the kind of king that you want. A king who will remind you on a daily basis by his own practice who the real king is. And if he does that, verse 20, his heart will not be lifted up above his brothers. He may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left. And the blessing, he, he will continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. That's the kind of king God can use. You know, we in this room are in, most of us here are in various positions of leadership, right? Some in a company, some in your home as a mom or a dad giving leadership there, some as an older brother or sister with little eyes looking to you as the example. In various spheres, we lead not unlike the kind of king that God had chosen for his people within the, that realm, that sphere of influence, the entire nation, on a smaller scale, there are leadership opportunities that God has placed before us. And there may be people crying out for a warlike king. And they're looking for you to be propped up and elevated, to be the man or the woman. And we need to resist that temptation to give in to the voice of the people and instead purpose to lead in the way that God has laid out here in Deuteronomy 17 that says, okay, my primary leadership task is to carry this with me, to read it daily, to learn to live that life of faith in our Lord God, to know Him more, to become like Him, to do it. And to remind those people that we lead who the real King is. That all all authority is really delegated. There's no authority I have over you. Parents, there's no real authority that you have over your children other than a delegated authority that the king says, I've entrusted these people to you. Remind them who the king is. Remind them who goes out before them in battle. Remind them who the warlike king is, the one who assures victory. And never put yourself on that throne in a way that says, look at me. What we just read there in Deuteronomy 17, does that describe you? Does that describe your leadership practice? And if not, today's the day to humble yourself before the Lord and say, God, I want to be that sort of a leader.